is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Drugstore giant CVS is getting into the house call business. It's going to buy a company that runs a network of doctors that make house calls. This comes as a big corporation like Amazon is getting more involved in the healthcare industry, looking to become a kind of one-stop shop for everyone's medical needs. We go in-depth into what CVS's move means for itself and, more importantly, for patients. We'll also look into how this will impact doctors in the short and long term and whether these moves will transform health care. Steve Bannon facing big legal problems again. He will reportedly turn himself in tomorrow to face criminal charges in New York. And we look into the Washington Post report about former President Trump keeping some documents that detail another country's nuclear defenses. California, we all made it through the blackouts, the potential threat for blackouts the last couple of days. Why does this keep happening uh, when it gets so hot? Netflix being threatened with a lawsuit by some Middle Eastern countries. They say its content violates Islamic values. And the Apple hype machine working hard today. The new iPhones, the other gadgets are out there. So we'll talk about those at the end of the show. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a yearly event like Christmas. Do you remember, say, in the olden days, uh, <laughs> when it was like, super huge that people would get in front of the stores and like line up all night and yeah. then clap when they open yeah. like and now at least it's died down a little bit now. yeah but every year anyway we'll, we'll we'll get into that later we start though get a new phone everyone it's time my, you know mine's like years old and it's an iphone 10 it's, it's gonna fine. get slower now every time the new one comes yeah, out I know. I the know. old ones get slower but i'm emotionally attached <laughs> to it we uh, start with CVS expanding its healthcare reach. Paul Siegert is a managing partner at PCS Advisors. That's a health benefits consulting firm. Paul, thanks for being with us. So CVS, I mentioned Amazon. What are they up to? Well, they're buying. Uh, they're buying primary care, and so we're seeing CVS in this case is is purchasing Signify Health. Uh, in fact, we just had another announcement today. Walmart partnering with United Healthcare to offer primary care through their uh, through Walmart stores. Amazon purchased one medical, and uh, Walgreens, I think, picked up Village MD, and they're building a couple of hundred of primary care clinics around their their stores. And the, the challenge that I see, or the, the kind of concern that I have, is that as we've seen more consolidation in healthcare, it doesn't seem that it leads to efficiencies that get passed on to the consumer. It oftentimes works the other way where it uh, drives up cost or uh, benefits the consolidator in the sense that they can kind of direct traffic. Right. So healthcare is a big money machine and they can make a oh, whole yeah. bunch of money off of this. Absolutely. And when you think about what uh, what's happened to primary care in this country over the last few years, or quite a few years now, the trend is primary care has been on the decline. It's very difficult as an independent practitioner to remain in primary care, so many of them have sold to uh, larger hospital systems, as an example. And what happens is, in fact, I have a personal story about it. My son broke his arm. It was in a town where I don't live. We went to the closest ER. The only referral they would make was within their own group. Uh, we weren't going to go back to that uh, area for his ortho care, but that that was kind of an in, that's an indication or a little story of kind of how the system works. If you own primary care, you own the gateway into the specialties where real money gets made, or you can funnel the people to your 
to your pharmacy to get their prescriptions, that kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to say, so basically the, the name of the game now is you don't feel well, so you go into, say, CVS or their subsidiary. You see their doctor. Their doctor prescribes the medication that you then get at their pharmacy. And then if right. you need any follow-up stuff, you go back to – it's like this closed loop. Right? You can also get some Skittles <laughs> at the counter on the way out. <laughs> some Skittles on the, on the way out. But, yeah. he, but here's what I find kind of interesting. I mean, in this country, so many people uh, are – you know, they get really riled up at any suggestion, for example, of having socialized medicine like they have in Europe, uh, for example. And they say, no, we don't want the government telling us. Uh, what our relationship ought to be with our doctors. But this isn't, it's not government uh, socialism, but it's kind of like corporate in a way, isn't it? If all these big companies yeah. own yeah. your medical care? Well, what we're, what we're allowing to happen is an oligopoly at best, where you have, I mean, think back prior to the Affordable Care Act, and my comments aren't for or against the Affordable Care Act, but it, what we saw happen was consolidation as a result, or at least at the same time frame where you were down to just four or five big insurers around the country, as an example. And that has not, we can all agree, that hasn't resulted in lower costs for us as consumers. You see the same thing when a large hospital system goes into a rural area and buys up the small hospitals. They come in and they sell to that population that the fact that they're going to they're gonna bring more services and they have, it'll be part of this large organization and drive down costs. And every time we watch that occur, Costs actually go up in those markets seven to nine percent shortly thereafter because they don't have competition to uh, to contend with, and we're allowing that to happen. As you say, it, it may regardless it's coming maybe from a corporate standpoint, but we're still watching competition decrease and large corporations create these vertically integrated healthcare systems uh, that do generate lots of profit but do not result in lower costs. Amazon Pharmacy is a, is a good example of that. It did not impact pharmacy costs in a downward way at all. Paul Siegert, Managing Partner, PCS Advisors. If CVS and other big companies expand what they do in the health care field, it's bound to impact doctors both in private practice and at hospitals, and that will in turn impact patients. That would be, oh, all of us. Dr. Tamim Alhaya is Chief of Medicine at Beverly Hospital in Montebello. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, some people, I'm sure, are going to take the attitude that this is a good thing. You have these big companies, and maybe they'll make medicine more efficient and more convenient for people who do not perhaps have primary care doctors uh, at their disposal. But then other people, like our last guest uh, in the last segment, point out that this vertical consolidation has not yet led to a decrease in prices. It's actually led, in some cases, to an increase. Where is medicine going from your point of view? Hi, good afternoon. Thank you, Mike and Charles, for this opportunity. And yes, as you said, everything has two sides of the story. So it might have improved the healthcare uh, access in some aspect, but in general, um, uh, it might drive some patients to seek healthcare through CVS. Now it's going to be more convenient. Um, or similar uh, 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 clinics. As you know, Amazon has just announced they're going to buy one medical. Walgreens also announced that they're going to uh, they have acquisition of CareCentrix. So all of those conglomerates like um, big health corporations might drive the healthcare in one direction, which is monopoly, which is going to decrease the competition. 
um, that might have some negative impact on local clinics, local hospitals that they live um, by uh, serving their communities. Uh, so uh, overall, in general, it might uh, help to uh, uh, deliver care to some um, uh, small segment of population where the access to the clinic is hard, but for the mass, for the general population, it might have a negative impact. Is there a world where this does work, at least for some, you know, I can get the doctor maybe to come and do a house call or a nurse practitioner or, or someone like that, and then I don't have to go to the hospital if I don't have a primary care right now. They don't have to run a bunch of tests on me, so that's not my whole day, and it's not super expensive. Although, on the flip side of that, then the insurance company doesn't have to pay for all that stuff either. So, <laughs> Right. So I think that, that drivers here would be uh, cutting the cost, but we want to cut the cost in um, a reasonable and a legitimate way, not cutting the health care. Um, if you have a primary care physician uh, seeing patients in their clinic, they're probably going to be seeing 20 to 25 patients in a day, whereas if they're going to start doing house call, it's going to be four to five patients every day. So there's going to be, we're already living in a shortage of healthcare providers, especially nurses. Uh, if we're going to attract those talents to join big uh, uh, corporates, uh, we're going to shut down some of the local primary care uh, clinics, um, and then we're going to lose that uh, coverage, in, especially in underserved communities um, like Beverly Hospital uh, in Montebello. Uh, we have clinics that support the communities. If we don't have providers to staff those clinics and they go and join big corporates, then we're going to shut down those community clinics, and then um, underserved population will be affected the, the most. In that case, you know, I was telling uh, during the commercial break, I, I was talking with Mike here and I was saying when I was growing up in New York, uh, you know, granted, this was before the invention of electricity. But but uh, my doctor was, you know, he had in private practice. He practiced out of actually the ground floor of his home. Uh, his nurse slash billing person was his wife. Uh, it, it, those days clearly have already gone. But. Is the notion of doctors being in private practice now something that has to be consigned to the history books? Are all doctors now going to be employees either of big corporations or maybe even big hospital centers? That's a very good question, actually. And that uh, touches the, the point here in California because in California has been emphasizing on uh, doctors' independence. Um, to make sure that doctors um, are the best advocate for their patients, are not taken away by uh, the decisions of corporates or insurance companies. Um, I think this is very... I came from the East Coast also. I did my training in Washington, D.C., where we actually, during my training, we used to do also house calls. Uh, house calls are good for certain populations, um, and doctors being employed by uh, big uh, corporates are good for certain also populations. But when I came moved to California, I found that this emphasis on private practice and physician independent would serve the patient the best because then doctors will advocate for the, their patient care based on their patient's needs. All right, Dr. Tamim Alhaya, Chief of Medicine, Beverly Hospital in Montebello. I remember one time when I was a kid, got really sick, had a house call from the doctor. Dr. Mm. Brandel came, and he had the big black bag yeah, I remember with those. his desk. I was like, 
you actually have one of those. Like, yeah. It's like a TV thing. Yeah, you know? now they, they, they don't have those. <laughs> we should do a story on, on whoever made those big black bags. Yeah. Like, whatever happened to them? They made enough money and they retired. <laughs> it's a happy story. <laughs> it's a happy story. Coming up, California in for another blistering hot day, but of course you know that. But is the electric grid able to handle it all again? And what is it about Apple gadgets that get everyone so excited? We're going to try to find out. Right now, though, an ally to former President Trump, Steve Bannon, reportedly in legal trouble again, just convicted of uh, contempt for defying a January 6th committee subpoena. Now the Washington Post says he's going to turn himself in tomorrow to face these charges in New York that accused him of duping donors who gave money to fund a wall on the southern border. With us is New York-based trial attorney Dante Mills. Uh, thanks for being here. So didn't he already face something similar? Were those federal charges for this kind of a thing, this this uh, alleged funneling of money out of this project to, to build a section of border wall? Mike and Charles, good to be with you today. Uh, this is something that Steve Bannon did, in fact, face in federal court. So the, the backstory is there was an organization, We Build the Wall organization. Uh, Steve Bannon, along with a couple of others, his business associates raised approximately $25 million. And what they said was an effort to support construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall. No money went to building the wall. Uh, the money actually lined their pockets and they personally benefited from that money. Uh, so there were charges that were brought in federal court uh, for this. But President Trump at the time uh, pardoned Mr. Bannon so that he could not or would not have to face those charges. So this is the state level court in New York uh, moving forward with the same type of charges. It's going to be a similar uh, similar indictment, um, similar facts uh, that Trump pardoned Mr. Bannon for on the federal level. Now, can you explain to people who I'm sure there are some who are scratching their heads and they're thinking, well, wait a minute, isn't there this kind of double jeopardy thing here? He was already charged by the feds. Uh, how can he be charged for the exact same crime by the state? That's a good question. And it's something that the Trump presidency raised a lot of, of issues that no one ever thought they would have to address. So the president's right to pardon is one of the most important rights and most powerful tools that the president has. It was put in place so that they can restore civil rights to people who their rights were taken away. So they have the right to pardon people, which means to forgive them of their crime. It doesn't clean their record. It simply forgives them of their crime. However, as the president, you can only control federal things. So that power does not translate to a state power. So this is an example of the state knowing that Mr. Bannon should be should face some kind of penalty and also knowing that the president took away the federal government's right to make him face a penalty. So the state is stepping in. I don't know if that's right or not. That's something that we have to consider. Is it double jeopardy? Because the president right or wrong, did have the ability to say that Mr. Bannon was forgiven of this crime. So should the state be able to step in and say, well, we're going to prosecute him anyway because the, the president didn't have any authority here? Does it change at all if the state has something new in this kind of a vein or realm? If they have got more than there was there before, and I guess there was a lot before, right? Because they said Bannon used like a million dollars of this for his personal expenses. Yes, it was about a million personally that he used. Uh, there was an effort to raise $25 million, uh, But there's no new information that we know of yet. There may be some information that comes down when he turns himself in tomorrow, which is what he's supposed to do. Uh, but from what I'm hearing and my understanding, it's going to mirror what the federal charges would be. So we're now faced with, again, the question of, is it right that someone who was pardoned 
uh, should have to face a penalty on a state level, uh, even though he could be absolutely wrong for, for his behavior and what he did. So if, if you were his defense attorney, what would your argument be, that it, it's intrinsically unfair? Absolutely. And you guys raised the great point of double jeopardy. Uh, I would say essentially a presidential pardon means to be forgiven of your crime. He was forgiven of this crime. Uh, and that should extend to all areas of law in the United States. That's what my argument would be if I was defending him. Obviously, on the other side, if you're the state, you're saying, well, he committed this crime. This crime affected people in New York because he took money from people all over America. Um, and he should stand trial for that. Uh, and the fact that he was pardoned on a federal level does not affect us at all. So there's two completely different arguments there that I think start and have to be talked about even before you get to whether or not he was wrong. Should he be charged on this state level despite receiving a pardon on the federal level? New York-based trial attorney Dante Mills. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The Washington Post reporting the FBI found a document about a foreign government's defenses during a search at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate last month. The report says that document included information about that country's nuclear capabilities. It didn't say which country, but there are only a handful that are known to have nuclear weapons. Plus, we have a huge surprise on our hands. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So with us now is Renato Mariotti, attorney, former federal prosecutor and host, of the On Topic podcast. Thanks for being back with us. Uh, I don't know what what possible reason. I know it's it's impossible to get into somebody else's thinking, especially certain people. Uh, but why would somebody, a former president, want to have documents in in his uh, or her possession after leaving office? that outlines the nuclear capabilities of, of an ally of ours, presumably? Well, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, the, uh, the state of mind of Donald Trump is famously rather complicated, so I don't want to make any predictions myself. Uh, he, maybe he wanted to brag, show them to his friends, or who knows, transfer or sell them. I don't, I don't know what his motives were. I will say from a legal perspective, uh, the, they're not irrelevant. His motives aren't irrelevant. In other words, it could be worse for him if he had a, a sinister motive. Uh, but regardless of his motive, even if he just enjoyed looking at them in his spare time, uh, it's it's nonetheless a very problematic thing, right? Uh, it, for the former, it president. raises the case or the raises the stakes in, in a few different cases, right? Because number one, from what we read in the in the paper and in the reports, that this is not just you know. Nothing is average, but not your average top secret. You had to be read into this by like cabinet level people. So that's number one. And then number two, if you've got this kind of stuff and it's among, you know, however many boxes they found at Mar-a-Lago and it's not a secure location, every spy in the world is going to try and get a membership at Mar-a-Lago. Well, that's right. I mean, there have been some reports of, I believe, a Chinese national who had infiltrated Mar-a-Lago. And so, yeah, it, look, it's a country club. It's, it's not uh, the Pentagon or some other heavily secure facility. So obviously that's a concern. I think separate and apart from the national security concern, uh, you know, as a, as a practical matter, the former president has serious criminal uh, concerns as well in terms of potential liability on his end. So, uh, you know, altogether, very concerning for our national security. And I guess it's worth noting as well, 
you know, some of this information may either be about an ally or including information from an ally. And so, you know, this information and the, the you know, potential uh, disclosure that would have to be made to an ally could potentially uh, hurt the United States foreign policy as well. So, you know, and this is a question we've asked a number of, of uh, experts on the show, uh, and, and it's not a, a partisan question, although I suspect some people are going to view it as that. Uh, it's a legal one. Um, with all of these revelations about what documents have been found there, regardless, as you said before, regardless of what Mr. Trump's motivations might have been, why is he not in custody? Wouldn't wouldn't you or I or or Mike or anybody else? People are in for a lot less. Yeah, I mean, some. I mean, it isn't normal, is it, for someone to have documents outlining another country's nuclear capabilities in their home? Well, yeah. So it's certainly not normal, and it it's also the case that if you or I had these documents, we would we would certainly be charged. I will say that it's an open question whether the former president is charged, and I would not be surprised if he was. So I, I don't want to in any way suggest that he is out of the woods or that he may not be charged here. In fact, uh, I think um, given the sensitivity of some of the information here, I mean, there's a lot of considerations that are going to go into um you know, whether or how they're going to charge the former president, you know, part of that's going to be, of course, timing. I don't think anything would happen until after the election season. But also, um, you know, they have to make sure that because they would have to reveal uh, the classified documents uh, to the defense and uh, potentially, um, you know, they would be used at trial. They the government is usually pretty selective about the documents that it charges in a case like this so that there are documents that are clearly, you know, classified or top secret, yeah, but, 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 uh, we're not all, but wouldn't but, have such sensitive information. Sorry, sorry to mm -hmm. cut you off here, but, but, but I want to get to this thing uh, quickly. This whole notion sure. about that they can't and, or probably won't do anything until after the midterms because of this sort of unwritten, uh, it's not even right. a rule, right? It's just this sort of unwritten understanding, I suppose, that sure. you don't want to do anything that might be interpreted as interfering with an election. That said, isn't there the, the, the almost certain risk that after uh, the midterms, maybe even sooner, but certainly after, uh, that Mr. Trump is probably going to declare himself a candidate for uh, president again. And isn't that still a problem? Because now he's all of a sudden not only a candidate, but probably the person who would get that, that nomination if he runs for it. How do you then justify doing something? Wouldn't the same argument hold that, well, now we can't go after him? Because the guy is running for president of the United States. Well, I understand what you're saying. I mean, obviously, years before an election, it's a different story. Uh, there is a, somewhat of an unwritten rule about proceeding, whether it's 60 or 90 days before an election in DOJ. I, I think that the consideration of indicting a current candidate for president, a leader, a kind of recognized leader of a political party, the former president and so on, is something that I'm sure the attorney general is, you know, heavily weighing. The bottom line is, of course, first of all, as you point out, there is an element to which if you don't punish the former president here or take action, there's the sense that he's above the law. I think separate from that, and I think more important, actually, in terms of how the Justice Department's looking at it, you know, they got jerked around by the former president and his team. They got lied to. They were misled. 
And I think that's going to factor heavily here. In other words, you know, they, that's a sort of plus factor that they often look at. And I think a, an analogous case might be the case of General Petraeus, who obviously served his country uh, honorably for many years, but ultimately had to plead guilty. He pled guilty to a misdemeanor, which is now a felony, thanks, thanks to the former President uh, Trump, who signed that uh, into law. But, you know, he pled guilty in part because his, he lied to the FBI when he was asked about uh, taking classified material and providing it to his then mistress. Yeah. If you have the stuff and there's an opportunity to give it back, give it back. Renato Mariotti, attorney, former federal prosecutor, host of the On Topic podcast. Well, here we are again. Another day of this massive heat wave that uh, continues to swamp California and other parts of the West. And with this comes another flex alert asking people to conserve electricity. Do you think we could order in for ice cream? Yes, we can. Okay, let's do that. 100 degree temps up and down the whole state. Record for electricity usage yesterday. We barely avoided the rolling blackouts. Cal ISO was close to triggering them. Um, Do we have enough electricity out there? Sean Hyatt, energy sector expert, professor of management organization, the USC Marshall School of Business. Sean, thanks for being here. So, yeah, we came right up to the edge yesterday. There's like three different levels, as we were explaining. We got to level three. The next step was triggering the rolling blackouts. I think there were some, um, you know, heat-related outages up north, but they weren't actually requested to happen. They just ended up happening. But we were right there on the line. We were absolutely right on the line. And it was that combination of, well, functional, like you could say the heat that caused some of these transistors to go out power going out as well as people responding to that text from California ISO to cut their use. And that was an amazing response that we saw within 15 minutes of that level three alert. Why, though, can't we, when it comes to electrical power, why can't we get our act together? I mean, this goes on year after year after year after year. In previous years, I know Governor Newsom has said it's unacceptable or words to that effect. Uh, the rates keep going up. I know I keep paying more and more. I'm sure you do, too, for electricity. Uh, why do we have this problem? I mean, yeah, it gets hot in California. Okay, it's getting a little hotter longer than it did before. It's hot in Arizona. But it's hot in a lot of places. You know, why can't we, we get this right? I, I think the issue is, is that the legislators, um, the California legislature has for too long focused on reducing carbon emissions. And that has been like their priority focus. And it hasn't been until this last session that they begin to think about reliability. And they passed the, uh, uh, a forgivable loan for, to PG&E for the, El Di- the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant to keep it running through 2030 because they were afraid, and rightly so, that if we take the uh, uh, Diablo Canyon out of service, we would be short about six gigawatts, 6,000 megawatts of energy, which, I mean, imagine just now, like this, what happened over these last four days, we would have been having blackouts every day for the last six days if the uh, Diablo Canyon were not operating. How do we get to a place where we've flipped the script back and people can actually, I don't know, cool down a little more in the afternoons? Because now the problem is, is you know, solar drops off because, I don't know, the sun goes down. This we can expect to happen. Although we got into this situation, people were like shocked by it. Um, but now they say pre-cool your house, you know, get it down to 70 in the middle of the day, then do your washing and dishes and all that. And then, you know, bump it up when we get into flex alert territory. Can we really bank on more storage for the power we've got during the day and then use more of it at night? Like, is that what gets us out of this? Well, I think right now they're banking on us doing more use during the day and less use from between four and nine, because right now we don't have the storage capacity. 
they want the utilities to strike contracts with storage providers and other, what you could say, generation solar that comes with the storage. But that is very expensive. I mean, you mentioned earlier about the rates going up. California rates uh, to the United States has doubled over the last eight years to the average price rates of and other states. And why is that? Well, it's because of the extensive use of these intermittent renewables. Solar and wind, right? we, well, solar is a little bit more. We know what it's going to be dispatched right during the, the daytime, but at night it's not there. And wind, especially for wind on land, is very unpredictable. So what do we need? Well, we need to have peakers, gas peakers, generators to fire up when the electricity um, is not there. That costs a lot of money. And the reason why is because it's the levelable cost, right? So this is the price it, it is to create a generator, to build a generator, but have it run only four to five hours a day. So right? that's expensive. I mean, if you were to, most of the time when you build these generators, you expect them to run, you know, 95% of the time. But if you're only going to run them, but 25% of the time, it's going to cost a lot more. So I was going to I was going to ask you before you mentioned that, you know, that that I just want somebody and I know other people feel the same way. I just want somebody who I can blame for this. That's what it comes down to. And and you were saying before, you know, uh, part of it is a legislative issue. But is it really us? Is it that we say we want to have all these things? We say we want to have enough power so that we don't have to turn our AC off when we're home and need it the most in a heat wave, but we just don't want to pay the bill. And whenever we're given an opportunity to say we want, you know, this is what needs to be done, we just say, nope, no way. <laughs> well, I guess you could blame the California voter for voting in the legislators that have focused a lot on uh, on reducing carbon emissions to the uh, and to the neglect of reliability as well as price, right? Because those are the two areas that has not been addressed and the, and the regulations have not at all touched those areas except for this most recent event with the Diablo Canyon. But it's also not an either or, right? I mean, we can say, why does this only happen to us? Who's to blame? But also like applaud some of the conservation because there's plenty of room for both. You mentioned the text message, which a lot of people are shocked at because we haven't seen something like that before. Usually it's like a fire uh, or evacuation or something, Amber Alert. But did that did work? Like people, you could see the drop off within... 10 or 15 minutes after that thing went out? Yes, that, that was amazing. I, I mean, it appears a lot of people are are following this. And when the text went out, it, it was some radio people, uh, it went on the radio, people heard it, they turned down their electricity. I, I know that there are a number um, of people participate in some of these utility um, power down and they get rebates such as Sempras, San Diego Gas and Electric. Um they they send out these emailers and say, please turn it down. We'll provide you like a twenty dollar you know gift card if you if you drop your electric usage by ninety percent over these three hours. And people respond to that, and it's it seemed to work. Like San Diego Gas and Electric saw a large drop in their usage after these alerts went out. So it's it's working. The conservation is working. But if if I were to say what we need to do to solve this problem, we need to focus more on the reliability as well as the cost issue. And what does that mean? We need more base load energy generation. This is the stuff that comes from large hydro, nuclear, geothermal, where we could have electrons flowing more constantly, which would be cheaper, and we wouldn't have to worry about the reliability issue. So this doesn't get fixed tomorrow? No, okay. it does, unfortunately. <laughs> It'll be hot tomorrow, too. Uh, Sean Hyatt, energy sector expert, professor, management organization, USC's Marshall School of Business. Sean, thanks. Well, now we know who to blame. It's us. Yeah. I mean, not you. Oh, good. 
Well, I guess you're kind of part of the us. So me too. <laughs> Wait a minute. It's our fault. <laughs> Dim the lights. <laughs> the, turn on the fan. Turn up the air. All right. Uh, more in-depth coming up. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. A group of Islamic countries in the Middle East say they're going to go after Netflix if it doesn't remove content that the group say violates Islamic values. The group wasn't specific, but there's been anger over children's content that allegedly promotes homosexuality. With us is Jason, Jason Squire, professor emeritus at the USC School of Cinematic Arts and editor of the movie Business Book. Jason, thanks for being with us. Well, I mean, we certainly have seen this sort of uh, thing with China. You know, China does have this influence over uh, movie content to some degree, uh, films certainly that are being released in China. So uh, at some level, I guess this doesn't surprise me, but it isn't a a welcome bit of news. No, it isn't. You know, um, American companies do not respond well to censorship or threats. Censorship is an intrusion on freedom of expression, and freedom of expression is a foundation of our entertainment content. So this is a, uh, you know, it's a tough one. What do these companies usually do when this happens? I mean, we've seen movies edited specifically for China. Is there, now that there's a lot of coverage each time that happens, is there, you know, less of a push to, to do that and just say, you know what, I won't release it there, but it's a huge market. And now with Saudi Arabia, I mean... Some of the problems that are apparently with some of these Netflix shows is not, you know, relationships even, but like the existence of homosexual people needs to be blurred, according to them, which is, I mean, that's like a no-go for an American company, probably. Correct. And in my opinion, they would sacrifice whatever benefit they would accrue by showing the content, by, by censoring the content, but having it shown in these certain countries. So recently, there's been uh, a real, you know, there are some interesting examples. Uh, I think United Emirates uh, banned the uh, the animated movie Lightyear, you know, Disney's movie, because it showed a, a same-sex kiss. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> Disney didn't, uh, really didn't blink. Uh, there's another Disney reference for Top Gun Maverick. This is really... Um, the before commenting about it, there's a, there's a Disney reference in terms of Marvel's Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, where Saudi Arabia wanted to remove what they called LGBTQ references, and the studio refused. So the movie was not screened in Saudi Arabia. So they sacrificed box office gross. My favorite example is Top Gun Maverick, where on Tom Cruise's jacket back in 2019, There was a trailer of Top Gun Maverick, which had uh, on his jacket, there were two flag patches representing Japan and Taiwan. And China objected to this, so they were scrubbed, those references, visually. They were, uh, the flags were missing in the trailer. However, recently, uh, the two flag patches are back on the jacket and uh, were returned to their original spots. But I wonder how long this is going to continue. By that, I mean, uh, you know, studios uh, not going along with this. They're not doing as well, as you know, as they were in the past. Netflix uh, is in the news again this week because I think they're having some layoffs and they're trying to figure out 
their finances after having for years been noted as, as being big spenders. So at what point do you think do these movie studios go, yeah, you know, it's wrong to censor this from a, a moral point of view, but we're in a business and we have to make money? Well, I'm not sure that that's the, uh, the references that are current. Uh, these companies understand that they have a responsibility to an audience, and that's the wider audience. Um, and to their employees. So these are two good reasons not to knuckle under to censorship. That's Jason Squire, Professor Emeritus, USC School of Cinematic Arts, and the editor of the Movie Business Book. Do you ever get excited uh, when there are new, like, I don't know, mattresses that come out every couple of years? No! Do you get excited every time, like, some new, I don't know, even a car, not necessarily, right? But every year, every year, Apple has an Apple event, mm-hmm. right? And, and they call it that. It's and we an all Apple talk event. about it. Everyone talks about it. We do stuff on it. TV does stuff on it. People, like, jump up and down. Why? Well, because the iPhone 14 is here. Oh. And now we can judge our age on what number iPhone we remember was the first one. <laughs> uh, there are also new AirPods, a new Apple Watch. And uh, with us is Ian Schur, CNET's editor-at-large. Following today's event, uh, Ian, how do they do this to us? Every year where they get people all excited or has it dropped off at least a little bit? Because I remember the days when people would like line up outside the stores uh, and wait all night. And then there would be this round of raucous applause as everyone ran in to get their new iPhones. Do we just do the same thing from our couch, though, and just buy them online instead? Well, first off, I, I'm going to suggest to Apple that they start selling mattresses because I'm really <laughs> curious to test this idea out. But it'll be one of those movable that, ones. Yeah. You know. Oh, my gosh. The eye mattress. Yes. So the, the thing is that. The, the data tells us that actually the phones are more popular than they've ever been, right? Apple's revenue and profit last year, uh, especially during the holiday shopping season, was the highest it ever had. And uh, all of the indications are they're selling as much or more iPhones than they ever have. I think what's different is that they are, you know, they've now become kind of a part of normal life, right? Uh, I mean, we've written on CNET about how uh, phones themselves, smartphones and the apps that they have, have become just in, ingrained in so much of culture and so much of the way that we live our lives that in a lot of ways, it's, it, you know, for a lot of people, that's just kind of, oh, they're, they're not going to line up anymore to get it. They're just going to kind of go to the store and pick it up when it's available. And that that may be different, right? But of course, within the tech industry, the whole world <laughs> All of the tech companies stop and hold their breath and watch and uh, see what Apple has to say. So what did we get? We'll start with the phone and then we'll move on. What did we get other than the better camera? Because every year we said this before, the one thing always we know is camera. going to happen is always a better camera. <laughs> well, well, what does it even mean anymore? They all look great. Well, like, I, I, yeah. I, I said that the new one has like 25 cameras, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> kind of like you know six blades on the on the on the shaving stuff right yeah it, no, weigh, look, it weighs uh, 120 cameras the better pounds. yeah <laughs> so <clears throat> the thing is that um one of the things that apple actually introduced this time around with the iphone 14 is that they said look you know we're going to have some extra sensors in there so there's a uh there's actually a sensor in there that can tell when it goes through certain g-forces and that's not so that it can be part of 
the next uh, the, the next Top Gun movie, but instead because they want to be able to actually tell when you have had a serious car accident and they want to be able to call the authorities for you. It's something they have already been kind of doing with the watches. They have fall detection. So if you fall or you fall off your bike, it'll call. And I have a number of friends who've gotten seriously hurt in bike accidents. And that thing has been a very valuable thing for a number of people. So now they're doing with car accidents. The other thing they did was satellite feature where it actually is going to be able to talk to low earth orbit satellites. This sounds almost sci-fi, but it's going to be able to do that if you are in a situation where you suddenly don't have any cell service. So imagine, you know, you're over in Yosemite and, you know, there is no cell service there and suddenly you break your leg on a rock and you have no one to help you. you if you're able to see a clear vision of the sky, you'll be able to call for help. And it's that kind of stuff where Apple in a lot of ways is kind of trying to say, look, you know, you can have a little bit of peace of mind if you walk out of your home with just a watch or a phone. That's really fascinating. But is that is that, by the way, the satellite thing, is that going to be free? So that is a good question. And what Apple has said is that for the next uh, for the two years after you buy your phone, it will be free. So the key question will be, well, what will they charge afterward? And I, I mean, I can't imagine a world in which Apple would ever want to see a headline where they didn't respond to someone in, in need because they didn't pay the subscription or whatever. So I imagine that in the next two years, they're going to make it very accessible and either cheap or uh, basically something that you get automatically whenever you buy it. Do they also kind of expect us, though, to buy a new phone every two years? Statistically, we do. Right. Um, you know, statistically, we 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 tend to buy new phones every two years. There are people who are on the on the outer edge of that. In fact, there are uh, an estimated 240 million active iPhones out there that are three and a half years old or older, which is why most of the analysts and experts out there say, look, even if the iPhone 14 was a dud, it's still probably going to do bonkers because there's a lot of people who don't have 5G and they're being forced to upgrade because 3G is shutting down and Who's going to buy a 4G phone when you just found out 3G is being shut down? The, the memes always say, okay, new iPhone's coming out, so mine, three years old, is going to be like a slow-moving sloth dinosaur creature. Like, do they actually slow down, or do we just think they do? Well, perception is definitely a very weird monster. And as someone who, you know, I get to touch new technology all the time, one of the things I find fascinating about the way my brain works is that I get to try a super-fast computer, and then I go back to my normal one, and suddenly it feels that much slower and i'm like it did not change but for some reason my brain works that way all of us are like that but yes there there is a there is a rumor out there a, 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 a kind of conspiracy theory that apple slows down the phones every year when it comes time to upgrade. It's a little bit and, slower yeah and look I, there was there has been we've written a lot about that on cnet uh, the truth of the matter is that they don't actually benefit from it because they resale value is one of the things that apple's iphones live off of right they they trade they ask you to trade in. They encourage you to, to to resell them. And that's something that if they did actually slow them down, it would hurt them. So, you know, it, it doesn't actually happen, but it is a very funny thing to bring up every time. Well, you know, it's interesting. I I, I have a, a 10 and it, it works fine. I replaced the battery about a year ago and it and it, it does everything I need it to do. And, and yeah. it's, it doesn't seem to have, have slowed down, which actually brings me to the point that all of these changes or additions, the satellite stuff and all that, you know, they're kind of interesting, although I can't remember the last time I was stuck in the, I don't know, the Sahara Desert and needed to reach a satellite. But I suppose You're not it, Tom Hanks? No, no. So, so I suppose it could We're happen. only halfway through the week. Yeah, that's true. It could happen. It, it could. Mike's right. It could happen. You never know. But, but when are they going to actually 
come up with something really revolutionary or maybe maybe they can't maybe there isn't anything more revolutionary but but i i think that's what i'm waiting for i'm going to buy a new one either when this one the one i have the 10 totally dies or right. when they have one of these events where i look at the thing and i go wow that is really amazing and they haven't done that yet you know i i so the interesting thing i i talk with people inside and outside of apple all the time about this question and one of the things that I get pushback from is that they say, look, you know, if you take all of the advancements we've done since the iPhone 10 came out and you pull up an iPhone 14 next to it, you are going to see massive changes, right? Year to year, it looks kind of boring. But when you take it over the three years or four years, uh, it actually feels pretty substantial, especially with the camera. So I, I think there is something to be said for these iterative updates do add up over time. But there is also a lot of hunger for when is this company going to come out with another life-changing product like the iPhone? And look, it, that's rare in the first place. We've written about on CNET how those kind of moments happen very rarely. But also the key question is, is that going to happen even in the tech industry again? That the, you know, A lot of people are saying biotech and, and transportation and health, that's where the future is. And you know, Apple's a technology company. So maybe... Th- these kind of life-changing things are not going to happen as much in the future. Ian sure, CNET's editor-at-large. Ian, thanks. See, I look at it like a bagel. There are like <laughs> 20 different kinds and varieties of bagels, yeah. but when you get down to it, it's still a bagel. It's a bagel. Yeah. All right, there you go. So, Wise words. Right, so I'll get a new phone when they have a new bagel. Yeah, we'll stay out of the desert <laughs> until then. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.